You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Before I introduce the episode, I just want to ask that if you enjoy the show, that you leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Ratings really count for a lot these days, and even a single sentence would help. So, on to the episode. This week's guest is investigative reporter and current head of the Department of Journalism at City, University of London, Paul Lashmar. Paul has spent almost his entire working life looking at the links between spies, intelligence and the media. Seemed like a great idea for a spy cast. I hope you agree. He has worked across the media landscape as a producer for the BBC, as a broadcast journalist for World in Action, a British investigative current affairs show that won many awards and brought down government ministers, and as an investigative journalist for the Observer newspaper, where he co-wrote the original story of the spy catcher allegations that was injuncted by the British government. He won Reporter of the Year in the 1986 UK Press Awards. He is the author of Spy Flights of the Cold War, Britain's Secret Propaganda War, and most recently, Spies, Spin and the Fourth Estate. In this episode we discuss Paul's life and career spent looking at spies in the media, the similarities and differences between investigative reporters and spies, intelligence overseers as either ostriches, cheerleaders, lemon suckers, or guardians, intelligence agencies and media organizations in a democracy, and the Zinoviev letter, Watergate, and Spycatcher. I hope you enjoy the episode, and remember those Apple reviews. So I think that there's so much that we can dig our teeth into, and I thought that an interesting way to begin would be if I just briefly read out a passage from your book, and then we use that as a launch point into a discussion. The quote is, Over the years, I spent an inordinate amount of time talking to intelligence sources in dingy pubs, 
where the limited natural light served only to highlight how smoky the room was. On other occasions, I would be in the oak-panelled clubs of Whitehall. Sometimes it was a question of meeting the more discreet sources at a busy rail station. If there was any question that we had to protect the individual as a source, we devised strategies to make sure neither they nor we were being followed. So the, the question I have is for many of our listeners who are not involved in this business, that just sounds like being a case officer. So let's just walk through some of those similarities and some of the differences. Well, uh, yes. Uh, well, the, the smoky rooms, that particularly, the one that comes to flash into mind um, when I talk about dingy rooms and smoke and all of that, in particular, there were particularly when you visited IRA, you went to meet members of the IRA, because you would do that from time to time if we were doing the Northern Ireland beat. And for those who have done it, you, they will know that in the parts of Belfast where the RA had its particularly strong support, they preferred to use bars. And those bars had a sort of airlock. So there, there would be a door, very secure door. Everything was grilled, grilled and protected because they were big targets, those kind of bars. And they would, um, you'd knock on the door and some very burly, worryingly fierce person would open it. <laughs> And they would let you into the first bit to ascertain what you were, who you, make sure they knew who you were, that you didn't, they might search you or whatever. And then, only then, would they allow you into the actual bar itself. And these bars, it was very hard to tell when it was night or day. And you would be pointed in the direction of some, somebody who was clearly in the know. I've done lots of different things as a journalist, but some things make you nervous. And that was one of them, because you're completely in an area you're not necessarily welcomed. And you're seeking to talk to someone who, if you annoy, has rather got you in the palm of their hand. So it was what I would call a, a cardiac uh, stimulating experience. <laughs> <laughs> Can you pull out some of the other similarities between both professions? I'm thinking just off the top of my head, the ability to write. So a good case officer needs to be able to accurately and straightforwardly convey a report. They need to be able to network so that they can try to recruit people. They need to be plugged in. They need to be good at observing or staying silent sometimes. So it seems to me that there's definitely a, a degree, a high degree of crossover. So just pull out some of the similarities for me, please, Paul. Yeah, well, there are similarities and there are some distinct differences, but we could perhaps could come to that later. I mean, the ability to write clearly, which is something you have to be able to do as a journalist. I mean, I teach journalism students and one of the ways that we make the point about being a journalism student is if at the end of your course or a period of time, the last thing you want to do in the world is be a journalist, you've got a really useful transferable skill. Because everything you ever do, you need to be able to write well. If you can write well and convey complex thoughts simply, that's an asset in just about everything. And particularly in intelligence, because as with journalism, in the sense that you're trying to deduce things and so you have to make it very clear what you know and what you don't know and uh, why you're analysing in the way you are. And, and, and that's pretty subtle stuff. And it, it's not, uh, you have, you know, you can only say so much, you've got to know where to draw, uh, draw the line. And to convey that in an, a report that a politician might want to read, to update them or brief them, I think is a real skill, as with doing good journalism. 
Let's go on to some of the differences. So what are some of the major differences as you see them? Well, the ultimate difference is well, the job of a journalist is to publish <laughs> and get it out there. And the job of the intelligence officer is usually to produce a report, but that's for a very narrow group of people to brief. I have to say, in a sense, that since I wrote that a couple of years ago, things have sort of slightly moved along because if you look at the whole thing that's going on with open source and crowdsourcing, I think you saw with Bellingcat, who I'm a big admirer of, but I think it's this new way of looking at intelligence. But I think what we're also seeing in Ukraine is, is, is a state that's able to use its people. In the past, journalists were quite secretive because you've got a story, you don't want to share it with your rivals. But intelligence officers are obviously very secretive. And therefore, they, the tendency was always to keep everything in, never let anything out. But I think there's a learning process now which says that Bellingcat uses resources that MI6, the CIA, even the CIA can't get, which is everybody out there that's out there that's interested. So uh, in a sense, the, the things have changed and I have to recognise there's a dynamic going on there. But, uh, but oh, for most of the history of um, intelligence and journalism, the job of the journalist is to get it out there and put it in the public print in a way that is in the public interest, whereas the intelligence agent is there to inform the, the politicians and uh, their senior cohort. I suppose one of the major differences in tensions would be, imagine saying to a journalist, you're going to have to spend your whole career without a byline. You're not, you're, you're, your name's only going to be known to a few people. You're not going to be recognised and validated in the public domain for your work. That's also an interesting and major difference. It does have an interesting knock-on, though, because what you find as a journalist, if you have an interest in the history of intelligence, is uh, even spies after many years of working in completely in secret, they come to a point in their life where they think, all that stuff I did, it, it can't do, if people know it, it can't do any damage. And therefore, they like to talk about it because like everybody likes a bit of recognition usually. There's very few people who don't want recognition for if they've done some extraordinary things in their life. So as a journalist, you get to meet these people who might be in their 70s or 80s even, who are finally prepared to talk to you about things they did many years before. Tell us a little bit more about the links that you found when you were a young reporter. So you mentioned in the book that in the 1980s, you were aware that some of your colleagues had worked for the intelligence services, the security services once upon a time. So I wonder if you could dig into that, but also just give us an overview of that period in time. I'm of the generation that was born after the Second World War. So I grew up in an environment that was very still in the thrall of the Second World War. So an awful lot of my seniors, when I went into journalism, had been in the Second World War. And um, some had, and because they were journalists, and they had a tendency to have been intelligence, for instance. When I arrived at the Observer, which was 1978, and I would go down to the bar, as we did in those days, there were many conversations, even within the Observer, a liberal newspaper, about who'd worked for intelligence and whether they still were. And you know, it was a point of amusement and discussion. Let me be clear, as I personally, you know, we can have a, a jolly conversation about intelligence and journalists, but my own personal view is that the two should never, you know, cross the line. Intelligence should stay in intelligence and journalists should stay in journalists. Second World War, you could say, provided exceptions. In the state of war, you've got a different situation. 
But uh, I do believe that when you get into periods of peace, the, the, any blurring of those distinctions are problematic uh, because you end up with conflicts of interest, quite frankly. But when I, I started looking at this, there was discussion about who was an intelligence officer in the Observer. And it was well known that the previous editor, because I, I was in the period of someone called Donald Trelford, but he... He, short, he had only recently been in the job, and before that was David Astor, who's a very famous character in his day. But Astor had been in the Special Operations Executive, and he'd gone to the Observer as an editor, having had a fairly distinguished wartime record. But, for instance, the literary editor at that time was someone called Terry Kilmartin, and who had also been in the SOE and was reputed to have stayed David uh, Astor's life at some point. So there, there was a sort of glamour about it, and some have been intelligence and came across. Uh, others, um, like Mark Franklin, who'd been reporters, had told others that they'd actually had periods in MI6. Mark Franklin, for instance, who is, is now deceased, but was a well-regarded Soviet and East Europe correspondent, he'd gone into MI6 but didn't like it and decided it was all too much of a boys game for him, so he'd become a journalist. Now, and I, I detail that. You speak about the intelligence elites in your book. So just map out those, what those intelligence elites are and how they intersect with, say, journalistic elites or with the journalistic quote-unquote establishment. Right. Well, the elites are, uh, are largely either politicians, uh, perhaps the foreign secretary, home secretary, uh, who have direct... Uh, responsibility for internal or, ex or external security and intelligence. Then you've got all the very senior people in intelligence, the heads of MI6 or the heads of MI5, GCHQ less so because they're very reticent generally. But again, that's all changed over time. And when I first started out, it was all informal. So there, there were there were journalists who seemed to have intelligence agency links where they could get stories from and and this was usually done through those elites which when I, I i gave you a slight suggestion of one when i was talking about the fact that they had been in the second world war together and therefore some people had stayed in intelligence some of them had gone back to back into civvy street as they called it but in, into fleet street actually in this case they'd gone into newspapers or tv and some have become politicians and, and these were networks so these forms, so you could call on a chap. So when I meant, when you mentioned in the early days of clubs, of course, that's how it would work, is that if you had a connection or could call on a connection, it may be a senior diplomat who worked undercover or whatever it be, if they were going to meet you, they would meet you in an in a upmarket club in the centre of London. As you might imagine, it's uh, leather Chesterfields, gentlemen walking around getting your gin and tonic for you. It was all of that. In those days, it was all informal. In more recent years, I think in the UK, it's become more open, not entirely open. But for instance, it's not who you knew in the war, it's who's been recommended and put in those kind of connections. And there are now, in most newspapers, somebody who is usually appointed by the editor who maintains those connections, which are, are sensible. In many, they're, they're, it's a sensible arrangement. I was just thinking about Philby when you were talking there, because obviously MI6 and then he was doing journalistic work during the Spanish Civil War and then in Beirut 
but just before he defected. And, and, and working for the Observer in Beirut, of course. Working for the Observer, yeah. and he was a very, yeah. his entry into MI6 was because he was a clubbable sort of chap. He was one of us. Yeah, exactly. And Guy Burgess of Burgess and McLean. Burgess was working for intelligence. Uh, I mean, it was he was, in any modern sense, Burgess was completely unemplo- unemployable. I mean, <laughs> he was a drunk, he was offensive. He was very intelligent, but Absolutely. Could you imagine in the modern day society having someone like Burgess turning up after lunch with with a bottle of whiskey in him or whatever? It's just, it's extraordinary. But he survived because he was very well connected. I mean, he knew all the right people. He'd been to Cambridge with all the right people. And therefore, he, it was a fact that in those days, the establishment was very protective of its own, even if they were slightly deviant in in their behaviour. I was wondering, like, during the course of your career as well, John, John Simpson, the well-known BBC uh, journalist, he talks about, I guess you could call it a little bit of footsie with MI5, with the intelligence agencies. And I know that you were an accredited reporter for your news organisation with the security services. So I just wondered if you could... Tell us a little bit more about that experience, but also before you became that accredited reporter, did you ever have a little bit of footsie or someone stroking, (laughs) trying to um, get you on side? I know exactly what you're speaking of. And particularly with the BBC, we're in a position, for very obvious reasons, to play footsie because they were the main broadcaster and they'd been very close to intelligence. This would, again, be forged in the war period. And indeed... We just spoke about Burgess. Burgess worked for the BBC as a producer for quite a long while. But in my case, I may have been born near the Second World War, but I'm very much a child of the 60s and 70s. So my journalism was very much inspired by Watergate. I was very concerned. I became very sceptical about how how the state had expanded, was working without accountability in so many different ways, and particularly intelligence. So I began to focus on intelligence. And of course, the whole Watergate led to all the questions about CIA excesses, and, and, and that, uh, that blew back into British intelligence, where it's quite clear that, they, you know, it was quite clear, even to me in those days, that there wasn't enough accountability in place. And accountability has always been the centre of the actual central plank of everything I have tried to do. So I spent quite a lot of time investigating intelligence for quite a lot of years. I started as a student and then went on to do it. That's how I got my first job on The Observer. And funnily enough, a a good journalist as, as a good intelligence officer tends to be obsessive. And the story that I got me into journalism, which was the British intelligence Cold War propaganda operations, is absolutely back on the agenda now because of the huge releases in the public record office in uh, London. We, I have seen documents in the last year that I have found quite were much. It was like it was much bigger, much more serious, and in some cases very, very dubious. For obsessiveness, forty-six years pursuing the same story. I think that's not bad, is it? I have done a few other things along the way. So I built up a lot of knowledge by talking to people, and I worked on the basis of I spoke to people largely who weren't within, who were dropping the word to a chap. You know, you know. Well, if we give it to this person, they will put it out as we want it type intelligence journalism thing. I was usually working for someone who 
was working with intelligence or being a, some kind of contact who was saying what's happened here shouldn't have happened and it needs to be known to the public that these uh, that they've exceeded their powers and, and behaved badly in some way. So that's where I picked up a lot of my knowledge and understanding and after many years of doing that, it, I was on the independent and at that point it, it, they wanted to start to build these informal they're formal links, but they weren't public links. So you didn't. You, the, the agreement was. It started in the nineties as part of John Major, the then uh, PM, Prime Minister of the UK. They had had so many scandals. They wanted to be seen to be more open and transparent. So he um, started to put pressure on the intelligence agencies to be more open. And part of that was to have these sort of links between journalists and the actual formal side of the Lesso GCHQ. But you, so you would have someone to talk to. And that just all kicked in for me a little in advance of 2001 and that period thereafter where I was effectively a national security reporter, as, as they would describe it in America. And that was really useful because one was able to have sensible conversations on the basis that you would say if there'd been bombing or some terrorist act, you could contact someone that you knew was in a position to know what was going on. And you began to build up a, a, a relationship of trust where you'd say, okay, what's the situation with this? And they'd say, we think this is, for instance, this is being funded by a group of North African emigres who are uh, supporting terrorism by check fraud or whatever it is. And you get good colour that would help you tell your story but it's all based on trust because one is skept has remained sceptical as a journalist always. And if your uh, contact within MI5 or MI6 actually tells you something that proves to be wrong and they mislead you, then that would blow. So it wasn't in their interest. So we built up reliable and quite sensible conversations over that period. And I personally think that it was beneficial because when you talk to people, real people who are doing a job – and they show they, they are intelligent, thoughtful, and they understand things like transparency and why it's important. You can be much more willing to trust them. And I think that's one of the reasons why government goes awfully wrong when it puts in professional PRs between journalists and any organisation. Um, the ability to talk to someone who does it, and, and, the, and they are compelling in in uh, in the sense that they are demonstrating to you in their conversation that they are professional, thoughtful people, you can trust them much more easily. So that was the advantage of accreditation. It it wasn't perfect because it wasn't. We could, for instance, we couldn't say MI6 told me last night. <laughs> you had to say sources in Whitehall. And I remember an editor actually changing one of mine to something a bit too close to the knuckle, a bit too close to someone in MI6 last night said. So I had to get the editor to write an apology that we'd done that because that breached the agreement. So, so it was a move in the right step. And I'm not sure it's developed a huge amount since then, but I know it's extensive. Most news organisations in the UK of any substance have a, a link person now. So for that position, your editor basically had saw that you were obsessed by this issue and had had a lot of experience in working. And then one reporter gets assigned this position. And does that mean that other people 
can't go to the intelligence agencies or are you just, you're the person on point, but other people can still work with them as long as they CC you in or whatever? Like, how, how does it work? Well, it, it works differently in different news organisations. For instance, the BBC have probably a number of people in that position because it's a big organisation. And you get people like Gordon Carrera or Frank Gardner. And, 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 and I'd say the BBC gets exceptional access, which can be really irritating. Uh, I can think of, I think it was Gordon Carrera did a piece not long ago where he was allowed into the room, the sort of supercomputer in the centre of GCHQ and allowed to see it. No other journalist has ever been in that position and you think that's probably pushing it a bit because that's making it very exclusive for one news organization the independent was a relatively small news organization and so i was the main point person on the independent on sunday but over on the independent kim Simgupta, for instance had very good contacts but he had had them prior i mean kim Simgupta is for anybody's interested in foreign correspondence is one of the sort of long-standing and best of the British. So he had, and he's, he goes into war zones still, I think he's been in Ukraine recently. He has very good intelligence contacts. And so you might, it's, there's still a bit of personal contact there in how these things develop. But I was, for a period, a point, I use point, but I would also then go to my own sources developed over years and say, look, I've just been told this, what do you think? And then you make a judgment. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. Tell me how wide off of the mark this is, but was it a little bit like when you become a White House press correspondent where it's very prestigious and you get great access and stuff, but for some people it's seen as being a bit, okay, you you hear the kind of corporate PR kind of take on things, but you're not really getting to the truth. I don't know, was, was, was part of that investigative journalistic a bloodhound looking for information like I feel like I'm just being condescended to a little bit someone's just telling me the the, the spun version of things rather than I'm getting to the truth uh, right okay I mean there's some nuance in here the first thing is that there are journalists who are accredited that I think clearly do everything they possibly can not to offend their contacts and I'm not going to I wouldn't say one now because I don't think it's an appropriate venue, but I, I could think of journalists who I've seen write stuff and I think what they're doing here is they're avoiding cutting their information source off and they're going too far. For me, it was, a, it really, it was slightly unusual because I'm an investigative journalist by background. So I am the antith- I, I, my life is the antithesis 
of being a lobby journalist. I mean, lobby journalists in Parliament hate investigative journalists because we clod around in our size 13 boots all over the and, and upset all their contacts. And that applies in intelligence as well. I've never, ever wanted to be a parliamentary lobby correspondent because you're just endlessly in a position of potentially compromise by how do you keep well informed while at the same time not um, annoying your contacts. It's, and compromise is inevitable in that. So it wasn't of interest to me, I have to say. And I may be misremembering this or misquoting it, but it reminds me of a, a saying that I think I heard Chapman Pincher write about. So Chapman Pincher, for our listeners, was a famous British investigative journalist. And he spoke about you would just turn into a urinal for the establishment. It wasn't him who said it. It was someone describing him. Said, oh, is that right? Uh, okay. Yes. And it's, and it, it's such a good quote. I used it for, the, uh, for a paper I wrote as an academic. Essentially, Chapman Pincher, there's a very good book, there's a very good uh, academic book uh, on intelligence, which has uh, an interview with him where he describes himself really as the first investigative journalist who, who really solidly concentrated on intelligence-related stories. So he did lots of stories around and broke a lot of stories. I'm slightly behind his generation and I thought he was too establishment. And I thought, I, I now admire him more than I did 40 years ago, but I still think he made a lot of interesting compromises. He kept his contacts within the establishment and didn't ever expose them. But in return, they would give him information. And if my memory serves me, it was possibly the, the famous historian, left-wing historian, Edward Thompson, I think, said, described Pincher as the urinal that others leak into. And it's exactly that point. It was that, exactly that point which I was that he would keep his coterie of establishment figures who were settling scores in Whitehall for their own power politics. So he would get leaks from one politician or intelligence, which was designed to cause problems for another one. And that was the notion of the urinal. I find that part of this whole ecosystem really, really interesting, the way using these connections to, yeah, to try to influence the machine, so to speak. If you can pull a lever here by releasing information or saying this department's going to do this, then you can you can try to put your thumb on the scale of the of the institutional game, so to speak. Does that make sense? It, it does. Um, it reminds me of something that a very good criminologist once said to me, when you think about police and intelligence, put aside the fact that they do these glamorous and interesting things and think of them as bureaucracies because bureaucracies work in certain ways. It doesn't matter whether they're intelligence or it doesn't matter whether they're department health or department of education. People are jockeying and all bureaucracies want to expand. And this Dick Hobbs is the professor, Dick Hobbs, who I have very high regard, criminologist, said this is a notion he describes as domain expansion, that in every bureaucracy is seeking to expand. So it has to take out other places. It has to absorb more money, more resources to build itself up. And so that's quite a useful thing. There are certain processes, as I think, as, as a journalist, and may well apply to intelligence, where you should try and look at things differently. And one of the things I, I, I really emphasize, besides domain expansion, is try to think about silences. What don't you hear? 
And this could be quite simply, why is someone telling me this but not something else? But, for instance, the journalist who really broke the, the great financial scandal around derivatives and all that was covering an area of capital markets that no one knew anything about. And this was Gillian Tett, and she was an anthropologist. So she realized that she didn't know or couldn't hear anything about this where clearly huge amounts of money. I think it's a really important lesson for anybody is that if you're a journalist is, okay, you're, oh, everybody has lots of noise. It's all coming at you all the time. This is you know, to being told, this is being told, that. Sometimes just sit back and think, what is it I'm not hearing? Why don't I know about this? Why is this person silent about this thing? And you would think that they might have something to say. Uh, it's a useful tradecraft thing. And it's something I try to do, explain to young journalists when they start out. Always think about the silence. But I, I think it's, silence is highly underrated. And how, do you, how did you personally walk that line, Paul? So in some of the research for this interview, I heard you describe yourself for originally when you started out in the in the 70s as a I just want to be pals with everybody I just want a pat on the back I just want everybody to stay friends and I'm happy to do what they want but then in the other extreme if you just come out like an attack dog from the get-go you're pretty soon going to find yourself like no one's going to want to speak to you because you're just I, I don't know how do you how do you find that middle ground where you like want to keep access so I can report on this but I also want to dig into substantive issues and do some of the things you say in the book, which is provide some level of accountability and oversight that goes beyond what happens in formal sites of politics. The first thing I would start off by saying is because I come out of the Watergate generation, there is always an assumption that I'm anti-intelligence, that I somehow want to undermine intelligence. I don't. I, I want a people's intelligence. I want an intelligence that works to protect a democratic state. I mean, that's the point. I mean, good. you want a good functioning intelligence uh, infrastructure because there are a lot of evil forces out there, as we are discovering at this moment with Putin. And I, and I think all the evidence, wherever there is, the fact is that intelligence is protected by secrecy and abuses take place. And in the, in the period I was growing up, it was all, it was still wrapped in the secrecy of the Second World War. Mustn't These people should be left alone. But quite consistently, when you look into it, the, that, those generation, particularly the ones who stayed on after the Second World War, it all got out of hand. They... I mean, I was involved with the spycatcher case, which in the 80s, and he made a lot of allegations about what had gone wrong because he was piqued about his pension and that he decided to talk. So he gave away a lot of information about what had gone wrong. He believed that the uh, head of MI5 back then had been a Soviet spy, which we still don't know less likely than perhaps it looks now. But the thing, what I learned most from Peter Wright was how in, inefficient MI5 was at that period because they were, they were each other's throats all the time. They were jockeying for power. They weren't efficient. They weren't accountable. And that didn't seem to produce... They missed an awful lot of things. 
and they did not do a good job. Their behavior in the colonies was absolutely appalling. Um, so I saw my work as very much trying to create an environment where intelligence agents AS, acted in a professional and ethical way. And that's proved to be more difficult than you might think. And, it, and in the book, I talk about some of the things that happened in Northern Ireland and how people in intelligence, because they're in a war situation, thought that they were above the law. Uh, and once you dispense with the rule of law, it's quite hard to bring it back. So I've always been, in, you know, my underlying thing, the central plank is accountability. Is our intelligence agencies accountable? Are they doing their job? Are they protecting the state? And in too many cases, they haven't been. I would say a lot has changed. A lot has changed. But at the same time a lot has, has changed, one always has to bear in mind, all my experience tells me, that if you don't have effective accountability, it will go wrong and repeat the mistakes of the past. And the problem now is with, with it's much harder for a journalist to be able to reveal wrongdoing in intelligence agencies because uh, the technology, uh, with you know, with technology and surveillance, it's much harder to avoid giving away your sources, or and and, and therefore it's and it's hard to get sources now. So it's much harder for a journalist to work. And I want to come back to Spycatcher because I find that such a fascinating book and such a fascinating affair. But before we, I think I'd like to, I'd like to do a deeper dive into the book, but I'm just thinking out loud as well. In terms of accountability, MI6 didn't officially exist until 1994, right? So when you come in, it's a very, it's a very different um playing field compared to what it is now so you've you've you must have seen so much change and transition over those 46 years from mi6 chiefs giving speeches and all these other kinds of things that are going on but when you came in it was still that very yeah it was much more nebulous wasn't it the famous American intelligence studies academic um, i try to think his name lock lock, lock johnson uh, lock, lock johnson and he came up and decided this thing of describing intelligence uh, oversight people as either as ostriches, cheerleaders, lemon suckers, and guardians. And he absolutely nails it with that the idea that, you know, some people don't want to see what's going on in intelligence. Others just think it's so exciting. That's the big problem. So many politicians think it's so exciting to be hanging out with intelligence people and being in the inside. It's glamorous. They've just joined. They're now officially members of the James Bond uh, fan club, and they go native. Lemon suckers can't quite make their mind up. I like the idea of a lemon sucker. And, of course, guardians are the ones that actually do the job properly and actually go and check things out. And so I think there's still a long way to go with that. Well, when I first went to the States in 1981 or that, and still fairly new to journalism, but had enough experience to know what... Uh, whenever you rang up anybody to find out anything difficult in, in, in Whitehall or in government, they always worked on the principle that uh, they wouldn't tell you anything unless it was in their interest to tell it was in their interest. And then I went to the States and I found out that you could ring people up. You could, you, 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 you could ring people up in all sorts of power. You wanted to speak to a congressman, you could 
you could ring the phone and you get to, oh, can I speak to a congressman? Such, who was speaking from the, yeah, yes, Paul Ashmouth, the observer. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, can you hold on? And, and this congressman would talk to you and tell you really interesting things. So I learned very quickly that in America, the basic position is that, that in those days certainly was to tell you something unless there was a good reason not to tell you. And I just found the cultures so deeply different. And, and, it, and of course, it's the, the book is a development of my thesis. And I, I rather took the title from something that another intelligence academic, Richard Aldrich, said, which uh, he describes Britain as the empire of secrecy because it's so ingrained that we try to keep everything secret. And, um, and that nails it. Um, so... I have always seen it with the battle with the empire of secrecy. It's, it's to get reasonable accountability, not tell it everything. Some things all journalists recognise. There are some things you shouldn't talk about. And I'm one of those who would defend The Guardian, for instance, about the way they went around Snowden, because they released very little of the material, and they never, ever released anything that could, impro- could have impacted on an operational matter or given away serious operational activity. So there is a lot of responsibility, but I can't answer for all journalists. But one would hope that journalists in serious news organisations who are dealing with this area have the, the combination of legal, ethical and common sense to make sure that they're judgments are correct. And you don't do this on your own, of course. If I, on occasion, your editor will say, no, Paul, I think, interesting story, but I don't think we should go that far with it. I think that may be unhelpful. You're in a situation where other people will actually, you're in a team, and a team thinks deeply about the implications of anything you do on a responsible and sensible news organisation. And I, w- I want to get a sense of the contours of your book now, Paul. So it's quite interesting how you start out and then we come up through World War One and World War Two and the interwar period, which is quite interesting. And then the, obviously the Cold War and the post-Cold War period. I find that quite interesting to map that onto the evolution of British intelligence and British intelligence agencies. So just give us a sense of the narrative arc of the book. What kind of ground are you covering and where do you come out on the other side? Well, it was quite a strange book to write because I'm trying to do a number of different things within it. I'm looking at the relationship. It's not a straightforward relationship. So I'm trying to look at the relationships, the different types of relationships between journalists and intelligence and for instance that may be direct contact it can be journalists acting as intelligence officers it could be intelligence officers union journalists and journalists uh, cover it can be how uh, propagandists use journalists to get their material out it's all those different things so I was trying to map that out and I think really for the first time to try and look at it in a, with, with my, given that I've got a sort of academic background, trying to put it into some kind of structure as to the relationship between journalists and intelligence agencies. And to do that, you've really got to explain the how there's a chunk of the book which tells the history of intelligence in the, in the UK really, mostly since the, the first formal 1909 when MI6 and MI5 are set up. But I'm looking at it from a particular point of how much influence journalists, what would, because journalists turn up all the time in intelligence. And the point I make in the book is that the, the, probably the reason there is an MI, there was an MI5 in 1909 was that the Daily Mail ran this series about the Hun, uh, the Hun are going to invade Britain. 
and the, mail, the Daily Mail did one of its classic operations to cause fear in the populace, and, and the politicians then have to respond. So they think, what do we do? Well, we better, perhaps we ought to up our game and have a secret service bureau. So even at the beginning, you've got a journalist who's, who is proposing this and gets his book serialised. Uh, largely, it was fiction, although it was presented as fact. And so from the very beginning, you've got journalists, and they're all along the way, and the interplay between them. So I've tried to tell that narrative. I've then also tried to kick in because I, I wasn't I wasn't born in night I wasn't working in 1909 I started in 79 so I'm trying to say that I'm, I'm saying well I as a journalist did all you know the stuff that you did from that on that those years on so I'm trying to be reflexive as well and say what did I do how well did I do it how could it be done better what changed? Uh, what were the stories I was looking at? What's my personal insight? So I tried to bring those narratives together, and 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 that inevitably, in each of those arcs, you've got what was MI five doing? How did it do it well? How did it do it badly? What can we learn from it? What are the interesting stories? Ultimately, I'm a journalist. I, I, I'm interested in stories. I mean, the wide broader academic context, but I'm really driven by interesting stories that encapsulate particular. So, if you're going to tell an accountability, explain an accountability problem, then the best way to do it is through a story and say, "Look, this is where it goes awfully wrong," or "Here, it's it, it's actually worked really well." And so, that's the sort of way I try to uh, approach it to keep. And it was quite hard to say how, how to read and uh, to, to write. I hope it's not hard to read. Uh, but one of the ways I did it was I realised there were little storyettes within it. And anybody who's seen the book will know that there's little, little inter, in, in, inter sort of interjections of a few pages in the slightly shaded, which are a little story that's there to explain something that happened at that point that encapsulates what the issues were. Uh, and I hope that approach, which is a bit unusual, works, because it's not the usual chapter, chapter, chapter. It's, it's a chapter, then in, it may be two inserts into it to illuminate it. I'd, I'd be interested to know whether you found that work. Did you find that work? I, I, I found that it did work. And what, one of my favourite books, actually, is Europe, A History by Norman Davies. And he does something similar because he gives you a chapter which is chronological, but then there's these inserts where for two pages he takes a deep dive into a theme or a personality that's important or something like that. So I actually find that change of registers like quite helpful. Let's zero in on a few examples. Let's go back to Spycatcher because I find Peter Wright like just such an interesting character. In the book, to me the book is it's like two-fifths history, two-fifths fiction, and I'm not exactly sure what the final fifth is. I feel like it's almost some Shakespeare thrown in there or something because it seems like in Act One, he's this young, smart, guy who becomes MI5's first technical intelligence officer. He's trying to bring this almost Victorian mindset and personalities. He's trying to bring them keep kicking and screaming into the modern age. He's involved in all kinds of innovations and developments and so forth. And then it seems like halfway through the book, when he talks about Philby 
how it wasn't fun after Philby defected anymore. And, and then it seems like he spends a lot of the final part of his career just chasing ghosts. He's he, The book's called Spycatcher, but he's he, he's not really catching spice. He's more catching phantasms that are constructed in his own mind or something. So it's almost like you see him, he's on point, he's professional, he's dealing with issues, and then he rises up the food chain and then he starts chasing shadows and in the end he's says that Roger Hollis, the head of MI5, is a Soviet agent and there's other kinds of claims that have subsequently been debunked or haven't been decided one way or the other. But I find him and that book really, really interesting. But maybe you can speak a little bit more about that, about the role it plays in your book. And also I know that you were personally involved in this whole affair. So yeah, just unpack Spycatcher and Peter Wright for us. It was in the day. It was very straightforward to me. There was a small group of journalists who we ha- we sort of worked together. Paul Greengrass, who co-wrote the book with, who's now a famous Hollywood director, we sort of worked together because that we pulled resources in this really difficult area. So we, that's what we were doing, and the allegations he made were pretty damn serious in, in lots of ways. Quite hard for us to to, to bottom out one way or another. But in a sense, looking back, I just, maybe this may not be, but what you've got going with him is two things, I think, that I retrospectively I probably would now, if I was the person I was back then, I might think a bit more deeply about, was he's another person who came out of the war. He lived in this closed environment of secrecy. And you have to ask, what does that do to your personality? The other factor combined with that is he had quite a bit of rejection in within the institution. And he thought, I think, he thought he was going to be the head of MI5, and he wasn't. And I think what does it for him is when he leaves, they screw up his pension. They don't treat him properly. And this is the sort of the psychological dimension to someone who works in the secret world. And it's really interesting. One of the things I now know, having seen lots of examples, is the impact of rejection on individuals. And rejection can make people security risks. A lot to do with Richard Tomlinson, who wrote the book The Breach back in the late 90s. He was an MI6 officer, and he gave a lot of information about stuff that uh, was very interesting to journalists. But the reason he did it was they treated him badly. And rejection is a very, very powerful emotion. And I think, I don't know now, I suspect that if you had an MI6 officer or MI5 officer and you had a sensible support system in place, you would look these days for impacts of PTSD, burnout, paranoia, all those kind of mental health issues. In those days, going back to Peter Wright, you would probably just be told, Oh, he's drinking again or whatever. Well, that's that's just the way of it. And you'd be told to pull your socks up. Nowadays, we would be much more sensitive. And I think that Wright, his career didn't finish, and this is quite important to uh, a lot of people, his career didn't finish as he intended. And then screwing his pension and then the agreement with that was a, end up with Margaret Thatcher, which wasn't kept to, that's what made him go into the public domain. 
there were lots of faults in the system, but his psychology could not deal with rejection. And that's what tipped him, I think. And as a journalist, I'm always interested in motive. What I'm really interested in is the information in the public interest. Is it important? Is, is it correct? I always like to know motive because you can then see where people are coming from. We knew even then that uh, Peter Wright's motivation was frustration that he'd been let down by both politicians and MI5. But I think it demonstrates how important creating a, an emotionally literate environment for people who work in intelligence, because that helps eliminate all the many of the different kinds of accountability problems that we've discussed in the last half an hour. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because it almost seems to me like in the book, it's almost like the author of the book has a nervous breakdown halfway through writing it and then the rest of it, the first part is tight and cohesive and then the second part just sort of unravels and maybe that's reflective of, of his mental state and it just goes to show never never mess with someone's pension, right? And let's let's jump cut back a little bit further. One thing that I really wanted to talk with you about was the Zinoviev letter. That is just so fascinating to me. So just for our listeners, the Zinoviev letter, and correct me if I get any of this wrong, 1924, it's printed in the Daily Mail. It's a letter that's said to be from uh, Soviet, a Soviet intelligence officer called Gregory Zinoviev to the Communist Party of Great Britain. And it's basically saying, engage in seditious activities. It's published four days before the general election, 1924. And there's some debate about the effect that it had but it's generally seen to have played a role in that election and, and in the reforms or lack of reforms in the Labour Party afterwards. So just tell us a little bit more about the Zinoviev letter and how that fits within your, yeah, just within like some of the work that you've done. Yeah, what's what's kind of going on there? This, this sounds a bit like an exam question, this. Yeah, but, sorry. Uh, okay. <laughs> I can't help it. Um, okay. Old habits die hard. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet. Well, the first thing I would say is that what it was perceived to do, uh, to do was that it was it influenced that election. The Labour Party, which is of course one of the two major British parties, was in its still in its relative infancy, but had a strong chance of winning that election. And the, the opinion is that the way the Mail put that out a few days before was deliberate and effective in undermining Labour's position because they were seen to be in with with the Moscow's Soviet gold, that all that kind of thing. So it, it, it was it's always been perceived as to have had a major effect. The Daily Mail, which is largely right-wing, mid-market newspaper in the UK, played a major part in that. It's very controversial, still is to this day, the, the way that it operates on the occasion. And in this occasion, it, it, the suspicion was it had been planted with the absolute set intent, the intent of undermining the election. And therefore, lots of people investigated it over the years to see whether that was true. And there is no doubt that, that the letter, there was always a question whether it was a forgery, not a forgery, there was also a question of how it got into the hands of the Daily Mail 
and it's always been attributed to either MI6 or MI5 in the various variations of the story. And it's, it has been always seen as an example of politicization of intelligence, the idea that the intelligence agencies tend to be right-wing and therefore support right-wing governments. And in this case, deliberately acted to make sure that a conservative party got into power. So, so again, it's a nice mixture of journalists and intelligence operators, newspapers and politics. It's always a good combination of uh, elements for a story. It's, it's, it's been reinvestigated in more recent years by a very senior foreign office historian who has concluded, if my memory serves me, that it was certainly handled by MI5, this document, and it was passed on that it was passed on to the mail from MI5. There are at least two MI5 people involved, and it was somehow it came through out of the Soviet Union, and it uh, was passed on by MI5 and given to the Daily Mail. And that I think we can. The view is that, that it was deliberately timed. Unusually for a conspiracy theory, this one looks like there's a good deal of truth in it. As to whether it actually really did affect the election, that's a very difficult question. It's, in those days, they didn't do the level of polling and analysis of the voting patterns. So whether it was in the mind of the populace when they voted, we don't really know. But the general opinion is that it probably did have an impact it's a bit like Brexit, the whole question of Russian interference in the Brexit. The problem is we don't have enough empirical data to say that what percentage of the population changed their attitude as a result of being exposed to social media that was coming from a, a Russian bot factory. So it's a similar kind of problem. I mean, this to me, this is one of the difficulties for the public because, okay, your Joe Q public or Jane Q public, a letter gets released... In the case of the Zimmerman telegram, not that long before 1924, it's true. It's the Germans uh, fess up to it. So that one's true. But then this other one comes out, which seems kind of, you know, mysterious as well. It's a bit weird and it gets published. It comes out and, okay, well, this earlier one was true. This one must be true or... It just shows you that it can go one way or the other. So how do the public know when it's on the up and up? I mean, they never do, right? But I, I'm just putting myself in the position of a member of the public. How would you know whether or not Zinoviev was true or not? I mean, Zimmerman was true and maybe the next one will be true and maybe the next one won't be true. You just you just never know whether the hidden hand is allowing it to come out and it because it's true or whether the head in hand is allowing it to come out because it's not true or, or yeah I don't know it's quite interesting the role of the media and journalists and communicating this information it's quite an interesting one and, and of course you, you also forget the environment to which this was dropped was incredibly freebrile because you, you're in a period where the Labour Party is this is the p- period of the great trade union meeting this is the establishment it's most repressive it's two years before the general strike in the UK which brought out hundreds and thousands not millions of people on strike because they were so appalled about the fact after the war that, that there was a terrible depression come in and people were having trouble making a living and and there was the mood was of course what was the big thing here 
is the Bolshevik Revolution, which had only taken place a few years before and was still in play, where the establishment was absolutely terrified that we would have a Bolshevik revolution in the UK. So it was febrile. And so this thing gets dropped into the middle of it and goes off like a bomb, really. Yeah, it's it's really, really fascinating. I think if you believe in the rule of law and you believe in accountability and you think these are two absolutely crucial things for intelligence, then this is still worth pursuing. It's still a live issue. That's what journalists are there for. As a journalist, I've got a very serious underlying motive. I do believe that democracies don't work without investigative journalists. Journalism is absolutely vital. And that sounds pompous. But it's coming from someone who still enjoys. When I get a really good story, I still get a buzz from getting a byline on the front page of a newspaper or a credit on a TV. And I think sometimes you you do have to put the cat amongst the pigeons. That's the job of the journalist. So I enjoy all of that. But I think it's you've got to be serious. You've got to have a moral compass. And you've got to try and make judgments in and believe in the public interest. I think that's absolutely vital as journalists. You have a responsibility. You have power because you're working for a news organisation. It's great fun. Because it is. You're not immune from it. But you have to stand back and say, what's my job? What am I doing? How can I do the best I can? And there is one currency in journalism, and that's stories. So you're looking for stories. So you have to work all these things together and make sure that you, what you come up with is in the public interest. Well, this has been such an enjoyable discussion, Paul. Well, it's really nice to speak to you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show.